You can turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, as we continue through our series in the book of Colossians. Have you ever been told, don't worry, it's worth the expense? Right, someone says, go to Disney World. It's worth the expense. They're lying to you. I just made some en enemies and some friends right there. Um, whenever you are called to put in a, a heavy expense into something, you want to make sure that it's worth the expense. If it's not worth the expense, I'm not going to put in the effort, I'm not going to put in the cost, I'm not going to put in the time. In our book of Colossians, we are being called to recognize that Christ is over everything, and as such, we are called to live our lives for Him. We are to give ourselves to Him, even as we've been singing about this morning. If Christ is our all in all, that we should devote our very lives, there's a great expense to that. And if there's a great expense, we must be convinced, is it worth it? Have you ever been given a glowing, you, you receive a glowing recommendation for a location or for a hotel or an Airbnb only to, re, to see the reality did not meet the expectation, right? You have your Instagram picture and you have your actual picture, right? Well, when we talk about Christ over everything, what is the reality of that? And do we grasp that reality for ourselves? If we truly are going to follow Christ, if we're going to live for him, is it true that Christ indeed is over everything. That's exactly what our passage this morning is going to walk through. In, the, in this book of Colossians, we're going to be given exhortations like, walk in him, walk in Christ in chapter 2, verse 6. In chapter 3, verse 4, Paul's going to say, Christ is your life, and so you should seek those things which are above. Later on in chapter 3, verse 24, we are called to serve the Lord Christ. These are these are big exhortations. And so the question arises, does Jesus deserve such devotion and allegiance? And perhaps a more pointed question is in order. Does your life show that Jesus deserves all devotion and allegiance? How your life reflects Christ reveals how highly you think of Christ. Let me say that one more time. How your life reflects Christ reveals how highly you think of Christ. We're going to be looking in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, reading down through verse 20. Read with me before we dig into this passage together. Verse 15. Who, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace by the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be in things in earth or things in heaven. Let's pray and ask God to guide us through his word this morning. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is over all. I pray that we, that our lives would reflect that reality. Guide us as we look in your word this morning, that we would be changed by it. In your son's name we pray. 
Amen. Our series title is called Christ Over Everything, and I was lazy this week and titled the sermon Christ Over Everything. But that wasn't lazy, that was actually intentional, because Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 serve as the core, really, of every argument that you find in the book of Colossians. We've talked about the context, the background of this book, that the Colossian church are facing this heretical teaching that's creeping in and, and threatening the believers to turn away from a pure and simple gospel. And so Christ is, or Paul is proclaiming to the believers, you don't need those things, you have Christ, he is over everything. And we've seen his opening prayer that he thanks God that, that they brought the gospel to, that the, the gospel has been brought to the Colossians. He's been praying that they be filled with the knowledge of his will that we saw last week. And now he sets forth this glowing hymn, this, this, this passage of praise declaring that Christ is indeed over everything. But in your own personal life, how high would you rank Jesus? Is he prominent? What is prominence? Is he prominent in your heart? Well, if someone who's prominent, that simply means widely known, right? You think of a scholar. This is a prominent scholar. He's not necessarily the first one, but he's prominent. He's well known or widely known. What's one step above prominence? Well, the idea of eminence. This is someone who's well known. This is the eminent scholar, right? What about beyond that? What's higher than even eminence? It'd be pre eminence. When we talk about preeminence, this means surpassing all others. That this is the preeminent one. There is no one above him, no one before him. Your view of Jesus is everything. And so I ask you the question, do you view him as prominent in your life? Or, or perhaps eminent? Or do you view him as the preeminent one, surpassing all others. In our passage today, Paul declares the fact of Christ's preeminence. He's going to lay the case out for us. This is why Christ is preeminent. This is what he has done to earn that place of preeminence. And the question is, will our hearts and minds align with reality, or will we demote Christ to simply a place of prominence in our own lives? We do that all the time. But realize that if you do demote Christ, you are the only one hurt by that. Because in reality, Christ continues to reign over all creation. He continues to be the preeminent one over all creation, even if you seek to dethrone him in your own heart. Your perception of Christ does not change the reality of Christ. You may only see him as prominent. But if so, recognize that he is still the preeminent one, and I believe the call for us this morning in our passage is that our hearts align with the truth of Christ's preeminence. Because if you do not have a right view of Christ, you will not have a right approach to life. As we consider our passage, let me just give you a brief overview of the structure of our passage. Many believe that these verses are actually a Christian hymn that Paul incorporates into his letter. This passage can be broken down into two main parts and each headed by a statement about his status as the firstborn. We'll see it in verse 15, and again later on in verse 18, with a summarizing statement in between these two sections. Verse 15, we see he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he'll go on to describe Christ's preeminence over the cosmos, all, over all the created order. 
If you look down in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. There's a summarizing statement that Christ is in all. He sustains all. In the second half, verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And he'll go on to describe Christ's preeminence over the church and saving work to redeem and restore it. So this morning, simply, this is what we're doing. We're laying the case out for Christ's preeminence. We're setting forth the reality so that our hearts can align with that reality. Let's begin by looking at Christ over the cosmos. We see this beginning in verse 15 of our passage. And it, we're, he's going to begin by pointing to Christ's divine position. There are a couple of describing phrases here that describe his divine position. First of all, he is the image of the invisible God. When you see the image of God, automatically this invokes the language of Genesis where mankind is made in the image of God. As a creation is made in his image, mankind is given authority over the created world, and yet mankind is not equal with God. So what is this phrase saying about Jesus? I want you to notice a very important distinction between the Genesis account of man's creation and this phrase. Mankind was made in the image of God, after the likeness of God, but Jesus is described as what? The image of the invisible God. This is not communicating that Jesus is created because he will back up the statement by pointing to the fact that Jesus is the creator of all things. And the fact that he is the, the image of the invisible God is also important because it shows the fact that Christ reveals what is invisible, that the nature and attributes of the Father are revealed through the Son. And this phrase points to the very deity of Christ. This will be mentioned a second time in verse 19 where Christ is described in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Christ is preeminent because he is the image of the invisible God. Why is this so important for the Colossian believers to hear? As we consider yet again the, the, the false teaching that's creeping in, pre-Gnostic teachings that most likely influenced the heresies threatening the Colossian church believed that Christ was a lesser emanation from God alongside other angels. In other words, Christ was simply prominent or perhaps eminent. But Paul shatters that notion that he is the very image of the invisible God. We read in John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He has a divine position. But as we continue considering this divine position, we continue reading that he is described as the firstborn of every creature, the firstborn of all creation. What does this phrase mean? The use of the term firstborn can be a confusing one. In fact, it's a term that, that cults and other groups have taken to, to, to spread false teaching about Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse to claim that Jesus was the first being that God created. If you visit jw.org, you'll read these words explaining Colossians 1.15. God created Jesus before creating Adam, they write. In fact, God created Jesus and then used him to make everything else, including the angels, and that's why the Bible calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation by God. And so we need to ask the question, does this verse teach that Jesus was created? Well, the answer to that question begins by understanding the word firstborn. The Greek word for firstborn, prototokos, can mean two things. 
First, it can, mean it can mean first in terms of sequence or time. So this would be like a firstborn son. Luke chapter 2, verse 7, she gave, Mary gave, first, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. There was very clearly first in terms of sequence, firstborn. It can also mean first in terms of status. If you look in Psalm 89, verse 27, King David writes, uh, speaking of God's words to him, I will make him, David, the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. This is talking in immediate context of King David. Was King David a firstborn son? No, he was the youngest of the sons of Jesse. But God made him the firstborn, and often in synonymous par parallelism of Hebrew poetry, the second line of Psalm 89, 27 clarifies, it's speaking of status, saying he is, I, I will make him a firstborn, namely the highest kings of the earth. So sometimes this word means first in terms of sequence. Sometimes it means first in terms of status. And so how do we know how the word prototokos, firstborn, is used in Colossians chapter 1? Is it talking about sequence or status? Well, really, context gives us the answer. The point of verses 15 through 16 is not to communicate that he was the first to be created. It's communicating that he is superior over all of creation because he himself created all things. He is the firstborn over creation because for by him all things were created. If you were to go over to John chapter 1 verse 3, we read this, that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. That is an absolute statement that all things cr were created through Christ. So with a clear context of preeminence, which is explicitly stated in this passage, the emphasis on Christ's role as creator, not creation, the burden of proof would really be on the Jehovah's Witness to argue why firstborn means first in terms of sequence instead of status. This passage is pointing to the fact that Christ stands superior and he's the divine preeminent one over the cosmos, the whole created order, heaven and earth. This is his divine position. Christ is over all. Well, what gives him such a divine position? Verses 16 and 17 tell us by laying out for us his divine work. This is what Christ has accomplished. Look with me in verse 16. As we've already seen, Christ is the creator. Why is he the firstborn? Why is he the image of the invisible God? For by him all things were created. Jesus Christ is the creative genius, the mastermind behind every created thing you see and everything you don't see in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible from the smallest microbe to planets and galaxies. Jesus created it all. And then Paul points out, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. These are most likely in reference to angelic heavenly powers. He's saying Jesus made those too. In other words, as we're going to read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, where the false teachers are tempting them with the worship of angels, why would you be deceived into worshiping angels? Why go on about visions when Christ has made all things visible and invisible? Why would you worship angels when you have Christ? the one who created the angels. By proclaiming Christ's superiority, Paul is actually refuting the error of the false teachers. And by promoting the worship of angels, 
And by assisting on these ascetic practices that we'll read more of in chapter 2, these false teachers are falling into the very condemnation uh, we find in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. In Romans chapter 1, verse 25, you read that, that the godless worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And here's Paul's point. Why settle for something less when you have the superior Christ? Why worship a creation when you have the creator? Why would you settle for something prominent when you have the preeminent one? As we continue to look at his creative work, we see the purpose for all creation. Look at the last phrase of Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. We learn that all things were created through him and for him. Not only is Jesus the author of all creation, but all of creation is for Jesus Christ. Every human being is made for Christ. The entire cosmos is for Christ. Theologian Abraham Kuyper once famously said, there is not a square inch in whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Every created thing exists for Christ. It's his. Even the thrones, the dominions, the rulers and authorities, whether they're spiritual powers or earthly powers, they all exist for Jesus. They are not independent of him, let alone superior to him. And as we consider this truth, I think we automatically immediately see the disconnect between the reality of who Jesus is and the daily experience of how we view Jesus. Do you see him as the sovereign, the Christ over the cosmos, the created order, the creator of all things for whom all things are made? How do you demote Jesus in your own life? Where do you steal ownership from him and claim it as your own? What in your life do you cling to and cry out, mine? Remember, demoting Christ in your own life does not demote him in reality. Whether you like it or not, Jesus stands as the supreme creator over everything. And whether you like it or not, you were created for him. And this is the fundamental tension, the fundamental battle that fallen humanity has against their creator. Scripture says all things were created for God. And us in our sinfulness look at that and we reject that and say, no, my life is for me. I do not answer to anyone. I do not exist for anyone. I exist for myself. We fail to realize that everything you cling to so closely in this life is under his ownership. And everything and anything you elevate as Lord in your own life still bows to the authority of Jesus Christ. Christ is the creator. As we continue to look at his divine work, we see that not only he's the creator, but he is the sustainer. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not only did Christ create all things, but he sustains all things. All things continue to exist because Jesus allows them to exist. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Every breath you take is evidence of the sustaining power of God. You are living in his universe that he is upholding by the word of his power. Is that how you view Jesus Christ? This is how Jesus is working in the universe today. He's the one actually keeping it together. And how presumptuous are we to walk around in his world that he owns and sustains and, act, and, and we act like we own it. My dreams, my rights, my plans, my stuff. Little to no acknowledgement of Christ's preeminence over all things. How prideful we can be. And yet, while as sobering and convicting as this truth is, is this not a comforting and reassuring truth? If Christ created all things, he created you. If Christ sustains all things, who is sustaining you? It is him. And with all the chaos and confusion we see swirling around us, what a welcome relief this is. And we as his children should not look at this reality that Christ is over the cosmos, that he is the creator, he is a sustainer. We don't look at that and, something, and it's something that we push against or reject. It's something that we rejoice in and we take comfort in that Jesus Christ is not only our savior, but he is the creator. He is over all things. And so as Paul continues to elevate and exalt Christ, he begins to zoom in a bit. And we go from the cosmos, the created universe, down to the church, his redeemed people. And we see his preeminence displayed through his work of reconciliation and redemption. And so we've seen Christ over the cosmos, but number two, we see Christ over the church. Look with me in verse 18. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We've seen his preeminence over creation, but now he enters our world and accomplishes a work here on this earth so that he might be preeminent, not just in the sense that he sits on the throne, but preeminent in the sense that he also sits on the thrones of our hearts. It's not enough for him to simply be preeminent in reality. He wants to be sure that you view him as such. And so he declares himself as preeminent over the church, over us. And he does that, why? So that he might be preeminent in everything. How do we see his preeminence over the church? Well, first of all, yet again, in his divine position, we see in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. If he is the supreme authority over all creation, then he is the mo most certainly supreme over the authority of the church. He is the head of the body. This analogy points to the invisible, indivisible unity between Jesus and his people whom he has redeemed. Christ is the head of the church. And as the head of the church, Jesus gets to decide how his church is run. Jesus gets to decide what his church teaches. And these false teachers who are creeping in have no right to enter in with their heretical doctrine. They have no right to divert the people of Christ from clinging to Christ. Christ is the head. 
And as the head of the church, Jesus alone nourishes and strengthens the church by his grace. These false teachers are coming in saying, let me show you what really nourishes you. Let me show you what really will take you further in your Christian walk. But those ones who are peddling that false teachings are the ones who are not clinging to the head, are the ones who are not being nourished by him. If you skip ahead to Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 through 19, Paul calls these, these false teachers out. He says, let no one disqualify you, verse 18, insisting on asceticism, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and look at this next phrase, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grow with a growth that is from God. And so as the head of the church, we see his authority, but we also see his grace. He is the one who sustains the church. He is the one who grows the church. And those who peddle false doctrine and believe false doctrine are those who are not being sustained by the head, who are not running to Christ for growth and for nourishment. And so we continue to ask this question, how do you view Jesus? Not just in his preeminence over the church, but in his preeminence over, uh, not his preeminence over the creation, but his preeminence over the church. He alone is the head and that means the pastor is not the head. He does not, as a pastor, does not have the right to seek preeminence for himself, to gain a following and receive the adoration of his people. In the same way, the head is not the congregation. We do not run our church based off of what everyone wants. We look to Jesus, the head of the church, and we ask him what he wants. He is the head of the church. He is the preeminent one. We see his divine position also described in this phrase, the beginning the firstborn from the dead. And here we see the use of firstborn yet again. And this time in the connection with his resurrection, the firstborn from the dead. And this time the, word, the term firstborn is used both in terms of time and status. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, we read in Colossians, or 1 Corinthians 15. And as such, he holds supreme authority over all. He rose from the dead so that he might have preeminence in all things. In Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, we read that, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we'll see this play out in the verse to follow. Jesus has earned the right to be preeminent. He went through the suffering. He experienced death. He conquered death and rose again so that he might earn that name that which is above every name. Are you giving to Jesus what he deserves? What he has rightfully earned? What else would it take for you to promote Jesus from prominent to preeminent in your eyes? What are you waiting for him to accomplish? If right now you're thinking, well, Jesus is, he's an important part of my life. I like him. He said some good things. He's not the lowest. He's not in the middle. He's up there, right? And we say that as like it's a good thing. I, he's, he's really up there. He's like in the top 10, right? What else would he have to do to move to that number one spot? There's nothing else he can do. Not only has he created you and sustained you, but he entered our world 
and he took on death, which we were subject to in lifelong slavery, and he used death to conquer death, and he broke the chains of death, and he reconciled a lost people to himself through his resurrection, and now he has earned the name of preeminence, and we stand here and go, hmm, I'm kind of looking for more, right? That doesn't make sense. What else does Christ need to do? Well, let's look exactly what he has done to earn it. We've seen his divine position as Christ over the church. And now let's look finally to his divine work. We see two elements of his divine work. First of all, his incarnation. In verse 19, it says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What an incredible statement. You don't need to look anywhere else to find a clear statement of Christ's divinity, of Christ's Godhood. All the fullness of God. Not 90%, not 99%, all of it. In the person of Jesus Christ, who was 100% human, we see 100% God. And Jesus stepped into a world full of sinful, rebellious people like you and me, a world full of people who reject the supreme authority of God and seek to make kings of ourselves. And Jesus, the fullness of God in human form, entered our rebellious world so that he might be preeminent in all things. And it began with his incarnation, taking upon himself the form of a servant and made in the likeness of men. And why did he do this? He did it to, to, earn, to, to achieve the work of reconciliation. Look in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. As one commentator puts it, the purpose of God's fullness in Christ is to reconcile the entire created realm to Christ. You see, Jesus was not interested in simply being supreme over a cursed world full of rebellious sinners. So he went on a mission to reconcile a hostile creation and bring them back to him. And by doing so, he has earned his place of preeminence. He has earned it by dying on the cross for us, making peace through the blood of the cross. The preeminent creator, the preeminent sustainer, humiliated and killed so that he might reconcile his creation to himself and earn the preeminence, not just in the cosmos, not just over the church, but in our own hearts. He has earned that spot. So where have you placed Christ in your hearts? We go back to that question at the beginning. Is he prominent? Is he imminent? Is he preeminent? And your answer to that question is revealed in how you order your life. It is revealed in how easily you worship other things. Whatever holds the place of preeminence in your life holds the most sway over your decisions, your desires, and your priorities. So let me ask the question, how many of your decisions, desires, and priorities are directly influenced by Jesus Christ? And if we have to step back and scratch our heads a little bit, and the first things we think of, well, my job is really the most important thing that drives everything else. Or, or, or this other person in my life. Or perhaps it's just stuff. Stuff is the thing that drives all of my decisions. That's the preeminent thing. I just want to get as much stuff as I can. Perhaps it's status. 
I want to be the preeminent one. And whatever impacts me the most and, and gives me the most pleasure and, and, and puts me the furthest ahead, that's what motivates my decisions and my actions. We stand here, and I'm sure all of us will say, yes, Christ is the preeminent one. He's over the cosmos. He's over the church. He's Lord of my life. But I, I know that if, that if we looked in our own hearts and we looked in our own lives and we asked, well, let's just, let's just put that to the test. Let's see. Most, if not all of us, would be ashamed at how little Christ holds over our life. How low we demoted him. But what a comforting reality that despite our rebellion, despite our weakness, despite our fickleness and our idolatry, how we run to other things, Christ still stands as preeminent. And he came to save you knowing that we are fickle and rebellious and idolatrous. And yet he redeemed us so that he might restore us and save us. And really joy, peace, Insecurity is found when our view of Jesus matches the reality of Jesus. When we elevate his position in our hearts to match the truth of his position. When we ask the king of creation and the head of the church to rule in our hearts. He has earned that right. He can do nothing more to earn that right than what he has already done. Is he preeminent in your life? This passage, actually, as we move forward continues to zoom in. And we'll see in the next passage, we'll look at next week, it moves from the cosmos to the church, and then starting in verse 21, you are singled out. And you, verse 21, who were once alienated, he is reconciled. Christ's power and authority extends to the highest heaven, and it reaches to the lowliest sinner. There is not an inch of creation that Christ does not or will not claim as his own. Next week, we'll see the preeminence of Christ in the message of the gospel as he reconciles lost sinners to himself. If you're here this morning and you, and you think, you know what, there's, there's no way. I, I, I'm, living, I'm Lord of my own life. I'm living for myself. I'm not interested. I'm not interested in Christ calling the shots. I'm not interested in Christ re reconciling me to himself. I'm doing just fine. I ask you to, 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 to look in scripture, to look at the passage we, we've looked at today and see the reality of what Christ is and what he has done. And if you are in rebellion to him, if you're rejecting him, notice that you're only, you're only damaging yourself by that that Christ has entered this world so that he might graciously bring you to himself. And he offers no prerequisites. He demands no prerequisites. He demands no works. He simply says, receive, receive the gift so that I might be Lord of your life. And Christian, if you're looking at your own life right now and you're thinking, my, my life nowhere close reflects the reality of Christ's preeminence, why not take time to identify what exactly is placing is, is being held at the number one, number two, number three, number four spot in your life and ask Christ to be Lord over those things as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, how it sets forth for us the glory of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, his, his authority and his grace. 
Lord, we've seen just how majestic you truly are. Lord, I pray that our view of you would match the reality of you. And we thank you, Lord, despite your preeminence and your authority and your glory and your power, you gently reach down to creation and you invite us to yourself, that you draw us in with cords of love and invite all to come. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has not yet come to you, that they might see your preeminence and submit to you as Lord, that they would come to you for forgiveness 